Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Ron Siegel, the author of the new book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. Dr. Siegel is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School, where he has taught for over three decades. He's a longtime student of mindfulness meditation and is a faculty and board member at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. You can learn more about Dr. Siegel's work at drronsiegel.com. In the conversation, Ron and I discuss the good news of being ordinary, why we compare ourselves with others, how to think about self-esteem, the role of mindfulness and self-acceptance, how to navigate disappointments, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book. Ron shares a ton of practical wisdom and insights we can all use in daily life. So please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Ron Siegel. Ron, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. I am loving the extraordinary gift of, of being ordinary. Great book and, uh, and a great fit for something that we've been trying to get at here on the show. But I guess to kick it off, why is this idea of, of being ordinary not initially seen as good news to people, which you talk about in the beginning of the book? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm afraid that uh, many cultures and American culture, in particular, the one I know best, uh, have really drifted toward an an idea that if only we can be special, if only we can be, in essence, better than others, or at least better than the average bear, uh, that's going to make us happy. And I actually think this is a this derives from a very hardwired tendency that we have simply as mammals. In fact, it, it extends beyond mammals. You know, species after species gets involved in pecking orders of various sorts or hierarchies. There are species of crickets that if you just put them in a box together, inside of a few minutes, they'll organize themselves into a hierarchy, into a pecking order of dominance. And we certainly know that Chickens do this, right? Because we, we talk about pecking orders, but so do all sorts of species of mammals. You know, if you, if you go into the African savanna, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of uh, going on uh, some so-called safaris, which is basically a jeep trip with a naturalist. And, you know, they'll show you in species after species, there's the dominant male surrounded by a reproductively promising group of healthy females. And there in the next field are somewhat younger males, usually doing the species-specific equivalent of playing basketball, honing their skills to try to come out on top. And you start thinking, well, why? What's up with that? You know, like, why would so many species be invested in this? Well, it turns out that across a lot of different species, your chances of passing on your genes are better if you're in some way dominant, if you're some way special, if you're some way um, better than the average bear, chicken, antelope, etc. And uh, uh, the way this shows up in us as human beings is with a real preoccupation with how we compare to others or how we compare to some internalized image of 
how we think we should be, uh, you know, and and then we wind up feeling either good about ourselves or bad about ourselves based on how those evaluations come out. And at least my personal experience is these these evaluations happen all day long and I can feel good about myself and bad about myself every hour, every minute, sometimes second by second, uh, depending on what's going on and both the feedback I'm getting from the world and and my own inner rating system, you know, how I think I'm doing compared to some image I've got of who of who I should be. So um, there's a lot of things that predispose us just in our wiring of our brain to be concerned with how we compare to others and to want to be special, to want to be coming out on top. It's such an interesting topic. As you mentioned basketball there, um, it makes me think I was as I was reading the, the beginning of the book, of the legendary coach John Wooden, someone that seemed to talk about a a similar idea of success not being external, et cetera, all these things. Um, but for the listeners that may not be familiar, somebody that it, it's kind of like a paradox of success, it seems like, because he's somebody that was extremely, quote unquote, successful, you know, winning 10 out of 12 years uh, national championship for the UCLA. But he never talked about winning. It was never something. It was like this thing that he constantly ingraining in his team of success. He defined as this peace of mind that comes from being satisfied with your own effort. Um, how does that connect with you? And, and how can we see through some of these illusions, I guess, if you will? Yeah, you know, I, I think it depends on what we want in life. And ironically, most of us are seeking a sense of well-being. Most of us just want to feel okay. We you know, want to feel happy um, and want to feel loved and connected with one another. And interestingly, these hardwired instincts that drive us toward not the kind of success the coach was talking about, but the individual success of, hey, look at me, um, actually work against what we most want. Because what happens is when we're when we're worried about how we're doing, it actually makes it harder to connect to other people. And when we're less worried about how we're doing and when the whole object is less about me and whether I'm living up to this inner standard or how I'm comparing to you, then it actually makes it much easier to connect. And then there's this this interesting reciprocal process that happens because actually connecting to others is a great antidote to self-preoccupation. In the moments when we're talking to a friend, or even when you said earlier in the podcast that you like the book, and I sort of said, oh, well, that's nice, and it made me relax and think that, so things are going to be okay between the two of us. We're going to be able to connect with each other. And just having the sense of connecting to one another softens the preoccupation with with this kind of social comparison stuff. You know, whenever we're with a friend talking about something, and particularly if we're sharing vulnerabilities in some way so that so that we're being honest with one another and not posturing, we shift from being two separate me individuals to being a we, to feeling like we're part of something bigger, our friendship. And that that goes a very long way toward helping us to relax the kind of preoccupation that we're hardwired to have with how I'm doing. 
so, so it kind of works both ways, right? That connecting to others is a great antidote to this preoccupation that causes so much suffering. And to the extent to which we can relinquish this preoccupation, it makes it easier to connect to others. How about this idea of self-esteem? How should we even think about or define self-esteem? Yeah, you know, the word gets used in a, in, in a lot of different ways, and uh, we could get into how kind of research psychologists use it. But I, I think there's a distinction between what some people would call conditional self-esteem, which is the way I feel good or not so good about myself based on feedback, reflections I'm getting from the world. Uh, people like what I'm saying, I feel good about myself. Uh, people think I'm a nice guy, I feel good about myself. Uh, my wife loves me, I feel good about myself. Uh, versus the opposite of all those, which also occur. In, uh, she doesn't stop loving me, but she could stop liking me um, in, in a given moment. The, you know, the opposite of those things uh, in which I then feel bad about myself. So that kind of conditional self-esteem, the kind of uh, experience that we all have where we, you know, if, if, if you or our listeners um, think of a moment in which uh, you felt that something that matters to you in terms of feeling good about yourself got validated. Like, let's say you like to think of yourself as intelligent or a nice guy or generous, and something happened and you felt intelligent or like a nice guy or generous. And that feeling that you get inside, and you can even feel the postural change that happens from it, right? Like we sit a little bit taller in the chair, our, our chest gets a little bit bigger, we feel proud or at least good about who we are. And contrast that with the moment where the opposite happens, where I feel like, oh, gosh, that was really dumb what I did, or boy, I'm, I was kind of selfish there, um, or, uh, you know, I'm not being a very good um, friend, father, spouse, whatever. And that kind of collapse feeling, they feel so different from one another, right? One feels so good, and the other feels so bad, uh, that it's only natural that we keep wanting to get the good one back, right? Wanting to get this, uh, this positive feeling back. And, but the problem is that, like all things that feel good in the short run, but not so helpful in the long run, it's highly addictive, right? We get addicted to these kinds of boosts of this kind of self-esteem. And that I would contrast from a sense of feeling valuable, not because you're special, but just because you're a human being and all human beings have value. Feeling loved because you're lovable, but not because you're special, just because you're lovable as human beings are lovable and puppies are lovable. You know, they're not lovable because they're like, you know, a better puppy than another puppy or because <laughs> they're fulfilling a moral code. They're just a puppy and they're lovable. Uh, those kinds of good feelings about ourselves, uh, which we might even call one aspect of those is actually um, self-compassion. And if, if I may, I, I think I'll maybe elaborate on this a little bit. Uh, we develop one or another kind of good feeling about ourselves, depending in part by the kind of feedback we get, often from parents early on. So if, if we might imagine that um, I'm a parent and my kid comes home disheartened because uh, he really wanted to um, make the baseball team and he tried out and he didn't make it. 
and I'm trying to support his self-esteem, and this is how I'm using the word, I would say, oh, you know, um, I know that's disappointing, but remember how great you did at basketball, for example, in the fall? You know, you're one of the star players. And, and think of what happened in math. You know, you were part of the regional mathletes and you won that award. You're a great kid. So, you know, it's okay that you didn't get this. You're great in other ways. That's about let's support self-esteem, get rid of that horrible sinking feeling by having some other self-esteem boost. If we were helping the kid to feel a sense of value, connection, love, and self-compassion, we'd say something very different. We'd say something like, oh gosh, that must be disappointing. You know, sweetheart, I remember when I was your age, I was really into drama. I really, really wanted to have a role in the school play. I tried out and I don't know, but the coach just didn't think I was that great. I didn't make it. And, you know, that whole semester was hard because I saw the other kids in the play and the play was good. And I wished that I could have been part of it. And I felt the sense of disappointment. You know, this is what it's like to be a person. You know, sometimes we win and we get what we want. Sometimes we lose and we don't. And it is very disappointing. Let me give you a hug, sweetheart. Very different. We're not going to solve the problem and get rid of the hurt by building ourselves up. Instead, we're going to get comfortable with being disappointed and sad sometimes when we don't get what we want in this way. And we're going to turn toward loving connection rather than a different self-esteem boost to try to feel better about ourselves. So it's that kind of conditional feeling good about ourselves Mm. that um, I mean, and actually most of the researchers uh, suggest um, use the word self-esteem to, or the phrase self-esteem uh, to refer to. So important. I, I appreciate you elaborating there. Let me ask, as you mentioned, this self-esteem addiction, the other side, this, this positive feeling that, that we might get from a, a compliment or praise. How should one think about that end of the, of the spectrum? Well, I I think both the boosts and the collapses are simply built into us as human beings and and apparently the other animals too, although they they can't talk about it this way. Uh, And so it's not going to go away. We're going to have these experiences. But in my own practice, and and really I I started writing this book as a self-treatment project, uh, to be perfectly honest, because there I was in my mid-60s having spent some four decades studying psychology, being a psychologist, and some four decades involved in contemplative practices, particularly mindfulness meditation and the like. And my own entree into that uh, was from a Buddhist perspective. And both these traditions, you know, psychotherapy and certainly Buddhist psychology are about not being preoccupied with yourself And you would think that the result of this would be to have some enduring, solid, coherent, stable sense of self that wasn't fluctuating this way based on good and bad fortune, uh, based on praise or blame or um, success or failure, but hadn't worked. You know, I still noticing going up and down, up and down, up and down constantly. And I thought, what's up with this? Why is this happening? And that actually got me interested in the evolutionary psychology literature, which points to our 
our legacy um, or, or our inheritance that we got from uh, from evolutionary history that makes this you know so so powerful and gets us so stuck in this. Um, and it also pointed to you know some of the pathways out of this, uh, and uh, those pathways out include things like connection, um, but they they also include things like you know using our you know mindfulness practice or simply being self aware to notice every time we go up or down, and to see if we can observe is there a way to hold on to the ups and get rid of the downs. And what we find is, nope, doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? It doesn't work for two, two big reasons. At least this is my personal discovery and also the people who have investigated this uh, as scientific researchers point to it. One of them is, you know, it's Newton. What goes up comes down, right? The um, Let's say I'm really good at what I do and I'm an athlete and I'm an Olympic uh, competitor and I win the gold what's the chances I'm going to win the gold four years from now? Not great. Eight years from now, pretty small. And let's say, let's say I'm a psychologist who treats patients, but also writes books and lectures and the like, which I happen to be. You know, there was a time in my life where, you know, to have written a book would have been amazing. I often train psychologists and and other mental health professionals, and I'll say to people, remember how hard you worked to get your professional degree? And remember what it felt like to get that, and maybe you got licensed to to practice as as a professional, and how that felt? And I asked the group, how many of you woke up this morning feeling, I feel so proud and so good about myself, I have my professional degree? And everybody starts laughing, right? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that wore off. And then sometimes there's one like newly minted uh, mental health professional. They'll start to raise their hand and they'll, they'll say, well, I still feel really good about it. Why is everybody laughing? This is the second problem. We could call it narcissistic recalibration. The things that once floated our boat, we become habituated to. And, you know, this starts very young. You know, I remember as a little kid, I don't have a clear memory, but some sense of taking those multicolored uh, plastic rings in concentric sizes and putting them on a pole and getting them in the order so it looks like a cone and thinking, wow, cool, I did it. And look, mommy and daddy, I did it. And, you know, my parents were attentive enough that I think I got some attention for that. You know, it's it's not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. Or our first job or learning to ride a bicycle or... You know, if we ever bought a car or rented an apartment or bought a house, had children, I mean, so many of these things that felt like amazing and we felt so good about ourselves when they happened, but then we habituated and we got used to that and we started needing something else in order to feel good about ourselves and started comparing ourselves to other people. You know, I don't compare myself to the Queen of England much, right? Like, you know, she lives in a very big house and does things that I don't do and and bless her, but I don't I don't get caught up in feeling good or bad about myself based on what she does. You know, take another psychologist who does what I do and hear about something they did that was like really special or really cool. And yes, there's a part of me, thank God, that wishes them well and feels good for them, but there's a part of me that gets jealous. There's a part of me that thinks, uh oh, I'm slipping, you know, that kind of thing. So this this narcissistic recalibration, how 
we change our comparison group and we change our criteria for what's enough, this this plagues all of us. And and the more we could see it, the more we realize it's not going to work. So to answer your question, I'm sorry, sorry for the long answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it's not fine to feel good when something good happens. It's, it's just our nature. We're going to feel that or feel bad when something, when a disappointment happens. That's just our nature. But I try personally and I encourage my patients or clients and uh, people who I work with in, in different capacities to try to hold some perspective on it. You know, try to notice just how reliable is this kind of feeling good or getting praised for success at keeping a sense of well-being. And might there be other pathways to well-being that are more reliable? Because I think it behooves us not to deny that it feels good to have successes or feel good about ourselves or live up to some inner standards, but that there are much more reliable paths to well-being that we might want to be cultivating. How about this idea of labels that we sometimes hang hang on ourselves of uh i'm a really good person or i'm i'm kind these things that we might hold on to uh a bit too tightly how how should we think think about that well i think there are, i think there are two perspectives on this that i find particularly useful one is to notice that all of these labels are based on implicit social comparisons we may not be thinking at the moment I'm a good person because I'm more generous than this other person who's not so generous. But that's actually what's going on. Because if I think of myself as a good person or intelligent or um, uh, capable in some way or um, uh, or even humble, right? <laughs> to, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's based on some kind of comparison of what I think other people are like. Uh, and I'm making this kind of implicit comparison. So just noticing that, I think, is helpful because we start to realize, oh, yeah, yeah, I am making these comparisons. And when I'm comparing myself to some inner standard of what a good person is, I can ask, all right, who taught me that inner standard? Where did I get that one from? Because that was also built up from either teachers or mentors or or some kind of... Uh, um, comparison. So, uh, so there's that perspective, and another one, which is which I find really interesting as a kind of exercise, is to notice the timeline that I use or my clients use for these evaluations. Like, let's say you're thinking, Josh, that you're a good person. Now, is that like a cumulative grade point average that started at birth? And has to do with the number of good acts that you <laughs> that you did from the moment you were born, or is it only based on since you've been an adult and where you quote have responsibility, or is it just based on last month, last week, or the last ten minutes? And we start to notice this is a really weird grading system that we've got, right? Because it actually tends to be kind of based on very recent things um, that. You know, we can be, we can have been a good person a lot, but then we did something hurtful to a friend or a partner or, or a family member, and we feel horrible about ourselves, right? And so, it, so it's like, you know, 
the GPA started again from scratch. And, and so it can be very interesting to both look at, you know, where the criteria came from and what's our grading system and, and how do we use this grading system? When, when I've talked about this with, uh, uh, with uh, therapy clients, you know, I've had more than one person say, well, my grading system, the highest you can get is like zero, right? You know, I'm either like bad, like failed again at being a good person or just made zero, you know, that uh, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting uh, to, to start, start seeing how well this works. It is a fascinating thing. And then what does it tell us about the future? If you were a virtuous person yesterday or the opposite, does that have anything to do with tomorrow or or right right now related to this thing of of up and down uh many episodes that that we have on the show maybe talk about virtue and and vice and a philosophy as a way of life and if you think about this thing of many of these wise people before us come to the realization that we're not sages we we make more mistakes than we want to accept how does this idea of, of accepting that, where does self-acceptance come, come into play here? Well, I, it, it has a central role, as, as, as I understand it. Um, there's a, um, uh, a Zen master, um, I believe it was, uh, this is attributed to Dogen, who was a, um, uh, an ancient Zen master that uh, um, is is uh, deeply deeply respected in in Japanese tradition, and uh, he was toward the end of his life, and he was he said, well, you know, can you summarize your experience as a you know as a Zen master? He said, oh yeah, it's easy, one mistake after another, <laughs> and <laughs> you know that that's a very interesting perspective because um, I do think that. The more we see our foibles, the more our best hope is a kind of cosmic chuckle, like, oh, my God, there I go again. Oh, my God, there goes my mind making these comparisons again. Oh, boy, there I am trapped again in wanting to prove myself, trying to feel good about myself and and these kinds of things. And the more we can see ourselves doing that, the more we get to actually develop a very profound kind of self-acceptance. you know, as I've worked on this book and, and lectured some on this topic, you know, I, I have different hypotheses about why this seems so salient to me. One of them is, all right, I kind of got picked last for a kickball team a lot, you know, in, in elementary school. Never really worked through those traumas. And we can talk about working through those traumas. And, you know, compensated for it by trying to be the smart kid. And I'm still playing that out here in my 60s. It's just because, you know, I'm a real failure at life. That's why that's why I'm seeing this happen. And indeed, there are all sorts of social messages. And we see this sometimes um, among not so wise leaders that suggest, well, anybody who's insecure is a failure. You know, it's only because you're a loser that you've got insecurities. If you're a winner like me, you would just be nonstop confident. Here I am winning again. Right. And uh, so it is easy to think that, oh, it's only our, our inadequacies and our, our failures and our vulnerabilities that make it so that this is an issue for me. And, and sometimes I do fall into that, that narrative of this on a bad day. But on other days, I'm able to see the universality of it. 
Mm. And I'm able to realize, oh, no, you know, we all get caught in this in our own ways. And actually seeing the universality of it is both, you know, it's humbling, but it also means we can connect to other people now, right? Because it's like we we really are all in this together. Um, I, I never found the quote, but Carl Rogers, who was uh, kind of the father of really acceptance-based psychotherapies, um, once said that, you know, it's so strange. When we feel ashamed, when we feel shame, we feel like we're not fit to be part of the human family. There's something bad about us that separates us from the rest. And the irony is that one of the most universal human experiences is feeling shame, that Mm. we all actually feel shame. It's one thing that we really, really have in common. And yet when we experience it, we think it means that we're not fit to be part of the human family. Uh, So it's, um, you know, the more we can see our foibles in this whole area, the more we actually become accepting of it and and get to experience what um, a participant in the workshop once labeled the cosmic chuckle. This, you know, here I go, you know, here my mind goes again doing this, um, but a chuckle and a sense of connection to all the other people who were likewise uh, having to deal with this. It's so fascinating. It reminds me of of something a previous guest said, which was a while back that I think it definitely stuck with me and and many of the listeners. Uh, Sebene Selassie, who who wrote You Belong, she said something along the lines of, you're perfect the way you are, and there's a couple things you you could work on. The second part, she says, feels like a bit of a slight, but it's actually an opportunity for this deeper self-acceptance in self-love, which is so, that's so hard to see. Totally. You know, it's, it's partly because of how we get confused about love. You know, so often we, we imagine that in order to be loved, I need to be special in a good way. Right. I need to be let's if it's the dating scene, I need to be especially attractive physically and I need to be interesting and I need to be secure. Right. Not, uh, you know, not uh, not insecure uh, and on. And I need to be accomplished in this way or or that way or I need to be especially kind, etc. And the irony is that we love each other most deeply when we see our vulnerable humanity, right? It's, you know, whether that's um, loving a child or loving a partner or loving a friend, it's when we're together in our shared vulnerability that we really feel this deep sense of connection. Um, Our problem is, you know, we get addicted to the highs, right? Like, oh, you know, I was especially fill in the blank for the criteria you use to feel good about yourself. And then I got attention for that or got positive attention for that. And then we really get hooked on this idea that 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 is going to be the pathway to feeling loved. And sadly, of course, it doesn't work because even if we're involved in a kind of romantic love in which I think you're the greatest person on the planet or the coolest or the most attractive, and you, by some stroke of luck, 
reciprocate and you think the same about me. And for a brief period of time, we both feel absolutely wonderful about each other because this other who I value highly judges me highly. So I must be great. And we're great together. And it really works quite well until somebody squeezes the toothpaste tube from the middle leaves up the toilet seat, or in other way, starts to disappoint and look like not so perfect. And if this other person isn't so great, well, they're thinking I'm so great doesn't make me feel so great anymore. I need to be admired or wanted by somebody who's great to feel that I'm really great. So we, we start to see whenever we put our eggs in this basket of trying to feel good about ourselves and special in the sense of, you know, especially... Um, better than others, uh, it, it ultimately backfires because it doesn't it doesn't provide a strong base for connection, and you know it's it's vulnerable to these kinds of disruptions. And you know, Lord knows there are a lot of couples that do the sort of mutual idealization for a while, and then it gets they start to lose it, and suddenly it's like what happened to our amazing love? Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas if the if it if the relationship is more based on honest vulnerability and seeing and accepting one another's foibles, um, as well as one another's strengths, uh, it's it's so much more enduring. So, you know, so I think what you're talking about is really important. It sounds like we really have an endless opportunity to, to work on some of these things just each and every oh, yeah. day. <laughs> you, you write in the book about disappointments. We can use disappointments as opportunities for insight into you know, how we look at, at happiness and, and maybe life. But could you also say, along with disappointments, maybe just desires, you know, our, our attachments, this, this need for control uh, and, and certainty? Yeah, I I think there's a close relationship um, uh, among those factors because it's our desire for things to be a certain way that makes us vulnerable to the disappointment, right? Mm. You know, I I need other people to think I'm, again, fill in the blank, you know, uh, smart, kind, free from self-esteem preoccupations. You know, this can get into anything, right? Um, uh, I need other people to think I'm that way and then I get disappointed when something happens where that's not happening. And, you know, one of the reasons why exploring our disappointments, I think, can be so valuable is it can help us to see what we're hooked on and it can help us to heal past traumas because one of the things that's so hard is we go through life and starting very early on, we have these disappointments, right? We have these situations in which we don't get what we want or we're not seen the way we want to be seen. And especially the kind where we feel bad about ourselves, right? The being picked last for the kickball team kind of thing. And then what happens is we come up with some compensatory strategy. In my case, okay, I'll be smart instead or articulate. And we lean heavily on that and try to milk it for what it's worth to feel better about ourselves. Um, But then some other disappointment comes up later in life and we have that sinking feeling. And when we have that sinking feeling later in life, it actually resonates with the pain from earlier sinking feelings. You know, I I had a a patient who was um, really taught me a lot. Uh, He said, you know, when we bury feelings, we bury them alive. 
So they never mm. actually go away. So if I push out of awareness that feeling about being picked last to the kickball team, and I'm using a relatively trivial example, although it hurt at the time, but you know, so many other people have suffered so much more painful disappointments. But if I've pushed those out of awareness the best I could and try to lean on some strength in order to get distant from that feeling of, of loss or disappointment or rejection, then I've got this unresolved traumatic memory hanging around in my consciousness, sometimes in my unconscious. And then when the new disappointment comes along, that gets activated. You know, it, it, it resonates with that. So one way we can work with this is to use each new disappointment as an opportunity to heal some of those past hurts, as an opportunity to ask, okay, this feeling right now, you know, I didn't get this thing or somebody you know, seems upset with me or didn't invite me to the party, whatever that party might be, broadly speaking. Uh, what does this remind me of? What, how is this feeling familiar? can be a very useful line of inquiry because then we start to see, oh, yeah, this connects to how I used to feel, you know, with my older brother. Or this is how I used to feel with my dad, who is very sparse in his praise. Or, uh, you know, my mom, who is distracted. I mean, you know, endless variations on this. But we can connect to the past and the earlier pain. And it gives us an opportunity to heal some of that. And when we can heal some of that then that lets us go into the next situation a little bit less afraid of the disappointment because we have a sense that, okay, if I have this sense of failure, I can be kind to myself. I can um, give myself a hug. I can understand this and investigate it in a kind of loving way and heal this hurt. I don't have to be afraid of it. And particularly, I don't have to uh, go after another self-esteem boost and get all addicted to that, or I don't have to quick go to my Instagram account and look for a like or, you know, count my followers somewhere in order to compensate and be able to feel good about myself again. That's so helpful, Ron. I, I saw that part and there's a, I, I believe you quote uh, Proust, uh, I guess if that's how you pronounce it, but the, this idea of feeling a pain to the full be, before, you know, it, it essentially we can let it go. Where is that line of, you know, all this experience, decades of, of working with people? Is there a point where some of this past pain and disappointment is felt over and, and over, maybe getting to the point of a, a rumination of, of something carrying on for, you know, a decade or two? Yeah, no, absolutely it happens. And um, there's, you know, so many of us are caught in one or another, uh, what are sometimes called core beliefs that come out of this, right? Mm. You know, the, you know, nobody's ever going to love me or, you know, I'm never good at what I do, or you can always tell one of these core beliefs because it usually has the always or never, um, uh, in, you know, in, in the phrase, uh, and tremendous pain around this, right? And, or very painful images that just come back over and over and over. And, you know, we get caught in self-fulfilling prophecies, right? If, if I think nobody's ever going to want to be my friend, then I don't reach out to people or then I hold back in a conversation or I do other things that are going to actually reduce the chances of 
making a friend. Or if I think I'm never going to succeed at anything, well, then I don't apply for that job because I think uh, I'm afraid of the disappointment. So, um, yeah, absolutely. These kinds of injuries can linger with us and keep us stuck. And, the you know, so the way to work with them involves dipping into them, but also having some having things to help us have some perspective, to be kind of grounded in the present so we can begin to see that that was then and this is now. And it might not necessarily be true now. And we might even try little what are called behavioral experiments, you know, to see, is this really true? Well, let me apply for the job and see what happens. And, you know, one of the things that I... Um, uh, I share in the book are are techniques, ways to use mindfulness practices and self compassion practices and and other both kind of both contemplative practices and uh, psychological techniques to be able to comfort ourselves and work with this when the difficulty happens, so that rather than being overwhelmed or stuck in it, we have a greater chance of um, being able to heal it. You talk about in the book this three H approach of working with our heads hearts and in habits. Would you mind touching touching on those briefly? Yeah, you know, it's um it's really because the propensity to be involved in self evaluation and to get addicted to the the boosts and and to hate the lows and uh because this is so strong, we kinda have to address it simultaneously on a lot of different levels. And, you know, the head level is is really both observing what happens, you know, trying to be mindful of all these ups and downs and asking some of the questions, like some of the questions we talked about before of, you know, so where did this grading system come from? How does it work? Where did I learn that I have to be this way or that way? Where did this inner standard come from? So that's that's the head level, as well as noticing and asking the question, is this working? How sustainable are the feeling good about myself through achievement broadly construed, you know, because uh, that includes, you know, achieving that, hey, I did it. I'm a good person now. Um, and the heart level is really opening to the emotions, because if we don't open to how this actually feels, then we can't heal the past hurts, right? We we, we have to be able to open to to how the disappointment feels and see how it relates to and connects to other disappointments we've had in our lives um, to be able to heal it. And then the habits is, might I actually change what I do each day so I'm doing fewer things that are in pursuit of the self-esteem boost and more things that are going to uh, cultivate or reinforce more sustainable paths to well-being? For instance, uh, you know, the statistics on people who measure how much time we spend on our phones or screens generally, and particularly on social media, are, uh, they're striking, right? That most people, most of us, spend a lot of time doing this, and a big percentage of that is social media. You know, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's genius, if you will, or one might say evil curse, was discovering when he was an undergraduate at Harvard that if you gave people an opportunity to get likes or the opposite, um, 
people will very quickly get addicted to getting the likes. And, uh, you know, Facebook was actually born out of a, a, a website that he, connect, that he created when he was a Harvard undergraduate that became wildly popular inside of, uh, <clears throat> you know, a few hours before the university caught on to what was going on and shut it down. Um, so this is highly, highly addictive. Uh, there's a little dopamine neurotransmitter release that happens every time we get a follower or a like or a heart on social media. And part of changing our habits is noticing, okay, that feels good. Yep, it's highly addictive. I remember hearing one of the uh, software engineers who created one of the many algorithms that feed us the kinds of things that make us feel good about ourselves um, on social media and uh, news feeds and the like. And he said, I designed the algorithm and I can't resist it. Mm. I find mm. myself, you know, clicking on exactly these things that bring, up, that bring these, these feelings uh, to me. Uh, so once we see that kind of thing, we want to try to change our habits, you know, go on, you know, at least brief digital fasts where we take a walk without our device and ground ourselves in in nature and notice that, oh, yeah, you know, when I'm grounded, when I'm in nature, there's a reason why, you know, the Zen poets were always hanging out by ponds and mountainsides, because when we're in nature, we're not so involved in the self-evaluative preoccupation. Like, you know, the clouds aren't judging us, the trees aren't judging us, the chipmunks aren't judging us. Um, I'm safe. I can get a little respite from this and get some perspective on this kind of thing. So changing our habits is things like that, that things like taking the risk of testing our hypotheses about what we can and can't do in the world. And particularly, you know, when we're on the fence, geez, should I go after some new achievement that's going to make me feel good? Or should I connect with my friend? At least some of the time, connect with the friend. That, that is actually going to, that is actually going to lead to far more, far more enduring well-being. Um, a, a brief, you know, uh, support for this position. I, I, I have a friend, um, you might want to interview him, actually. Uh, his name is, if you haven't, his name is uh, Bob Waldinger, and he is mm. simultaneously a psychiatrist, a uh, psychoanalyst, um, uh, um, a Harvard professor, uh, the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is the longest-running longitudinal study on human well-being, like what actually gives us well-being, and happens to also be a Zen priest. So he's an interesting guy, right? Mm-hmm. He wears a lot of hats. And uh, he has a great TED Talk um, where he explains where we're at in the... We, I shouldn't say we. Uh, I didn't do it, but... I identify with it, uh, where the study is at that's been following a cohort of some 700-odd men since 1938. And it's all men because Harvard undergrads were male at the time. And there were gender biases at the time um, in in a lot of studies. Uh, Anyway, uh, he will tell you that the jury is pretty much in. We know what the central factors are in human well-being. And he'd say the one that floats to the top of the list over and over and over is the quality of our relationships. And those relationships don't have to be harmonious. You can bicker with your friends. You can bicker with a partner. You can bicker with your kids or parents. But they do have to be relationships in which we fundamentally trust the other, feel that we have basic goodwill toward one another, and have each other's backs. That's what matters. And that is so different from 
let me be special. Let me achieve this so that you'll want to be with me. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other way of orienting the world. That's a habit we can work on changing with a lot of little decisions all day long. Definitely. Let me ask a question around decision making. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious about for yourself, you know, if you were to go, to go back uh, a number of decades, you, you have this interest in, in psychology, you become a clinical psychologist and, and, and pick up this mindfulness practice that has carried, carried you through for, for many decades. How did you discern that path? How did you make that decision? And I guess maybe a part two of this idea, all these uh, uh, concepts that we've been talking about, how can that help us make better, wiser decisions and not necessarily follow the path of, of likes, if, if you will? Well, my own path into these interests, um, and I, I, I can be honest about it these days because there's a lot of interesting research happening in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, um, which is also an area of interest of mine. Uh, but it turns out that I was a 17-year-old kid, and I was growing up in a time where the I was in a suburb of New York, and the counterculture had a big influence. And uh, I had some experiences with psychedelic drugs that actually provided a window into what it would be like to not be self-preoccupied. You know, some moments in which I felt a sense of oneness and connectedness to other human beings and to the wider universe. And suddenly I wasn't preoccupied with the antics of my high school girlfriend who was rather on again and off again, <laughs> providing lots of self-esteem, highs and lows. I wasn't so worried about how I was doing academically um, and the highs and lows of that. I had a sense of profound peace that, that came from really shifting out of this whole realm of narratives about Ron and how Ron is doing. Mm-hmm. So I had an early glimpse into that. I probably would have been a mechanical engineer because I'm sort of science oriented and and oriented toward uh understanding the material universe i probably would have done something like that but that got me interested in psychology and actually got me interested in meditation practices even though i i certainly didn't come from a religious background um and uh so it's 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 interesting in a way that here at this rather later stage in my career um this uh urge to research and do this book came up uh, because it was really an extension of, yeah, no, it's that, it's that early insight. And, and what makes it so hard, right, to make that kind of insight that can, um, that can be accessed? I, I'm not, by the way, suggesting that other people uh, try this path indiscriminately. The, the research in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is happening under very controlled conditions with a lot of safety and guardrails built in and people can get into a lot of trouble with this and frankly there's a lot of unscrupulous people masquerading as guides here so that caveat I'd like to underscore um, but it was um, but that actually was uh, was my experience and it has been uh, it has been a background theme all along uh, and then particularly compelling decades later that wow why is this so hard you know why why do we keep why do I keep getting trapped and why do I have so many clients and patients who um 
you know, they're wonderful people, many of whom have actually accomplished a lot compared to the average bear, but they're still struggling with this. They're struggling either to ward off the feeling of not being good enough or they're stressed out trying to continue to prove themselves. What's up with this? So, um, so that, that's, how, that's how I got into this path and uh, how interestingly uh, uh, this question has remained throughout. It's a, it's a theme that's come up in a, a number of conversations. I think we're 75 episodes in or something, and we, I traditionally ask something, some question along that line of what started this search for wisdom or understanding, what, you know, fill in the blank of whatever that may be. Looking back, was that, did that experience in, around that time, was there a bit of a insatiable curiosity in, in search around human nature, psychology, etc.? There was, but you make it sound a little more noble than I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, the... Uh, you know, sometimes I've trained a lot of mental health professionals over the years, and and sometimes I'll talk about you know what brings us to the field, right? And there there's there's kind of two pathways. One pathway is I don't know. I was always the person in the dorm that everybody wanted to come to and talk to about their problems. It seemed like what I what I did naturally, so I decided I'd do it for a profession. There's that path. And the other path is the insatiable curiosity, but the insatiable curiosity, at least in my personal experience, is almost always born out of suffering. It's mm-hmm. almost always born out of, God, why am I so anxious? Oh, gosh, why do I feel depressed here? And the suffering doesn't have to be at the level that, that uh, you know, reaches a clinical diagnosis. It's just the everyday suffering of being a human being and the ups and downs of life and and our longings and... Uh, and and I will say, I, I, before we leave, I, I do want to come back to how this has gotten harder today than it had been um, for a moment. But but it was my own personal struggles around pretty pedestrian things that got me interested in, I want to understand this and understand how the mind works because I'd like to be freer from this. And when you, I guess, sit today, how are you thinking about it today this this search if if you say maybe insatiable curiosity has that itch been been scratched a bit or are you still just as curious as ever both (laughs) you know i feel like uh I, i feel like uh um i've had the um you know the blessing and privilege of having been able to learn a lot, right, by, you know, dint of training in these different areas and and all that I've learned from my clients or patients, you know, they've taught me a tremendous amount um, and my friends and colleagues and family members and, you know, just life experience. So I, I, I feel like on the one hand, I've learned a lot. And on the other hand, I have a sense that really understanding human beings, the mind, how it works, what causes suffering and freedom from it is infinitely complex and challenging. Um, so, uh, you know, I simultaneously feel um, like, well, there's a lot I've learned and I feel totally humbled in terms mm-hmm. of how little I'm sure of in this, uh, uh, in this arena. Um, well, I yeah. love it. Well, let me ask if someone's listening, maybe facing a bit of uh, decisions and discerning their their path in life, 
any thoughts come to mind on maybe avoiding some of this self-evaluation comparison running in the background to, to make wiser decisions? Yeah, you know, I think we need to be a little bit countercultural around this. Um, uh, you know, because we spend so much time on addicted to screen time now, you know, not many of us wind up seeing a, um, uh, you know, posting on Instagram or Facebook, you know, woke up this morning, had the runs again, afraid my girlfriend's going to leave me and I'm going to get a bad performance review at work. Rather, it's like, here I am at this fantastic place doing fantastic things with fantastic people and you're not with us. You know, that's what we see on social media. You know, if we were countries or nation states, it would be as though we were spending all day reading our own crime and poverty statistics, you know, really seeing all the difficulties of, of life and reading other people's travel brochures. Um, so this leads to tremendous feelings of, I got to do it differently. I got to have more. This isn't enough. I should be other than as I am. And ambition's great. There's There's all sorts of... Uh, good reasons for it. But I think one of the things we all need to be is a little bit countercultural about this and say, okay, so we're marinating in these messages and actually these messages are being delivered actually for profit. Like the reason why everything is set up is to get us to spend more time on the screens and, and, you know, because that can be monetized with advertising and the like. And and I you know, I, 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 I don't want to be critical of the economic model because I use the Internet all the time and I know somebody's got to make a living doing this. But um, but to be skeptical about it and, and to ask, is this really is this really the pathway toward well-being and to check out in our own experience what has been most enduring? Because I think most of us, when we're thinking of changing our life in some way, we can think of, oh, I want more of this feeling that I got under this circumstance or that circumstance, where we recognize that, you know, it's a fragile feeling. You know, that's a feel. I got that because it was going well, but the feeling wouldn't be there if it wasn't going well. And to reflect on, you know, I once had a, I once had a guy. It was very early in my um, work as a psychologist uh, who came into my office uh, who had actually just sold his defense contracting business for thirty million dollars cash. And he kept using that expression, $30 million cash. And I kept imagining an enormous wheelbarrow. You know, what does that even mean? (laughs) Right. And this guy was kind of bereft because he had put all of his energy into this. And the and his relationships weren't great. And he didn't really have other interests. And I'm, you know, I'm super interested, like, oh, this is going to be one of these meaning of life um, psychotherapies. And there I was with my interest in uh, in Buddhism and contemplative practice. And I had interest in depth psychologies like Jungian psychology and the like. You know, psychologists are very interested in the idea of meaning making. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be great. And as often happens, if a therapist has a clear idea about how they think the therapy should unfold, I was not really connecting with him very well. I wasn't really meeting him where he was. He nonetheless came in to see me a few times. And then it was maybe the third or the fourth session he comes in and he's looking really different. He's looking animated and engaged. And I, I commented on it. I said, did something happen? He said, yeah, I've come up with a business plan by which I think 
that I could invest my 30 million and and get a company up to $50 million. And I think if I could do that, I'd feel like I had succeeded. No iron in his voice. That was the last I saw of him. Um, maybe he succeeded. Maybe he didn't. But I think one of the things that we can do is reflect on, do I really believe that this path is going to be a reliable path to well-being? Or is it likely to be contingent? You know, when most of us hear this story, we think, I bet when he gets to 50 million, it's not going to do the trick. It will for a little while, but it's not really going to do the trick for a long time. And see, to what extent can I, can I put my energies into things that actually have some sustainability? And, you know, there, there's a reliable lift, list. It's safely and honestly connecting with other people. It's engaging in the present moment so that, like right here when I'm with you, you know, when I'm mostly with, oh, how am I sounding and will people like me? Eh, not such a, not such a renewable resource because sometimes I'm going to be in the groove and other times I'm not. If I'm mostly doing this because I really want to share these ideas with you and I really want to share these ideas with, with your listeners to be of use in the world, that's a renewable resource. I can keep, I can keep doing it. And some days it goes well, other days it doesn't go well, not our podcast is just one day, but you know, whatever I'm doing. But if my if my goal is this kind of connecting and being useful, it's going to be sustainable. And things like gratitude, you know, if I can notice what I've got, notice all the blessings that I've experienced, notice all the love that's in my life, notice the fact that, you know, here I am in my later 60s and I'm still reasonably healthy. I can walk and do things. You know, I haven't been stricken by something. Um, This will date when we're recording this, but I'm not in Ukraine at the moment. I'm not in a horrible war zone where terrible, terrible suffering is happening. If I can be grateful for that, and grateful for the opportunities that I've had to learn and study and all that. You know, gratitude is very interesting because in the moment of gratitude, I'm both not stuck in self-centered desire. It's not like, oh, yeah, that would be nice, but could I have it with caviar? You know, that was, that's <laughs> nice, but can I have it even better? You know, I'm not stuck in that. And when I'm grateful, when we're grateful, we're grateful for or toward something, right? I'm grateful for the people in my life. So I feel a connection to them. Or if I'm theistically religious, I'm grateful to God. So I feel a connection to God. Or what fits my orientation a little bit more, I'm grateful to the wonders of nature, to the amazing human brain and and to all of life. You know, And in those moments of gratitude, there's also this wider connection. Um, so there, so there are, there is, you know, there's a lot of other things we can do too, but some pretty simple touchstones that we can orient ourselves toward when we're making decisions about how do we want to be living our lives and, and what are the, how do we want to work with our head, heart, and what habits do we want to develop that are going to support these more sustainable pathways to well-being? Well, that is beautiful in a, a great spot to, to wrap up. I'm, I'm so appreciative of your time, Ron. Um, where would you point listeners interested in, in learning more about what you're up to in the world? Well, uh, this theme, I'd point to the book that you've mentioned, um, you know, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. Um, and for other things, um, I have a website, which is drronsegel.com. Um, and uh, 
there's all sorts of other, I've been involved a lot in writing about mindfulness and how to use it to work with everyday problems, you know, anxiety, depression, interpersonal difficulties, a lot about mindfulness and psychotherapy, and even a whole part of my career that's been about treating uh, chronic pain and uh, chronic stress-related disorders. Uh, so if, if people are interested in um, those aspects of the work, and if people want to you know, take up a mindfulness practice, which can be very, very supportive for the work that we're talking about here, um, there's all sorts of free meditations and things there too at uh, drronsiegel.com. Well, great. And we'll link everything in the show notes. I highly recommend uh, the book to the listeners. So Dr. Ron Siegel, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on In Search of Wisdom. Oh, thank you so much for all you do to have the podcast. It's a great theme and a great and a great show. And thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. And thank you, everybody um, who's listening for uh, for your interest as well. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.